The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who knows all of our requests even before we make them, that you have already prepared an answer. We know that if we call upon you and ask you, that you will show us great and mighty things that we knoweth not. Father, this morning we want to bring to your attention this young child that was just born with this birth defect. We pray for uh, the mother. We pray for the family. We pray for the doctors involved in their wisdom. And we pray that as you work out your will in this situation, that that it will be an opportunity to uh, witness, to share the gospel, to bring the family closer to you and, and trust and reliance. And, Father, we pray that you would um, just work out your will in this. Father, we also pray now as we study your word that we might understand the things that we study, see how they apply to our lives, see how they uh, challenge us. We pray that we would be responsive to the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And Lord willing, and the clock doesn't run too fast this morning, we will conclude our 18-month study of Galatians. And we've got over 70 hours in studying this epistle. So I was reflecting on that this morning. It came to my mind that in the past, not with this congregation, but previous congregations, as I've taught through an epistle like this, it may be 30 or 40 lessons, people have commented, well, you know, Pastor, that's all fine and good, but that's so detailed. You, know, you really belong in a seminary classroom. You know, that just shows how ignorant absolutely ignorant most people are of seminary. I think I spent three hours maximum on Galatians in seminary. One of the great things about the curriculum at Dallas Seminary was you did go through every book of the Bible, but you didn't go through in a tremendous amount of detail. And I remember the, the course I had Galatians in was called the Epistles of Paul. That was excluding Romans, which was a course in and of itself excluding 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, which were courses in and of themselves. And I remember uh, Tommy Ice, who was here last summer. Tommy and I sat in the front row, right in front of Dr. We call him Dr. P, Dr. Pentecost. And that was tremendous. Pen Dr. Pentecost would come into class, and he would just open his Bible and start teaching. That was it. No notes. He had been teaching these courses for so many years. He was pushing 70, I think, at the time. He's a little over 80 now. No, he must have been pushing 60 then. And uh, he had just been teaching these courses so long. But, of course, Romans is the expanded version, I think, of, of the, many of the topics in Galatians. And we did go through that in detail. But even in seminary, you take a course like Romans, your focus is more on the grammar, the exegesis, not so much the theology, although there is sometimes spent on things like that. But even in a course like Romans, which is such a crucial epistle, you're restricted to, what is it, about a 17-week semester meeting three hours a week. So at the most, you're only spending about 50 hours going through that epistle. And part of that, of course, is given over to tests and examinations and things like that. So you don't get the depth that a lot of people think that you get in seminary. The word seminary comes from Latin word from which we get our word seminal means a seed. doesn't mean the whole tree. <laughs> it means a seed. You are given the seeds. The seeds are planted in a man's thinking and his, in his cognition so that it can be fertilized with further study over the years and develop. So that's the purpose of the local church is to, that's where you get into these things and you teach verse by verse and go through the scriptures and that's how you build your understanding of the word. Well, we have spent 70 hours or so on this epistle, and the reason I chose that as uh, one of the first things to teach the congregation is because of the crucial themes, the crucial doctrines that are covered by the apostle 
in this particular epistle. The main theme is grace, of course, that God's undeserved, unmerited, unearned favor, that we do nothing to earn or deserve it, and that the gospel is by faith alone and Christ alone. These are issues that many people just do not understand today. Many churches do not teach these things anymore. Many pastors don't understand these concepts anymore. We are plagued by the popularity today of a heretical teaching called Lordship Salvation, which wants to add commitment, Lordship of Christ, works, all kinds of things, either front-end load them or back-end load them into the gospel. And it is a terrible thing because people in the pew tend to be very confused as to just exactly what the uh, Christian life consists of and what salvation consists of. So I took the opportunity to start off with Galatians to make sure we laid an excellent foundation at the beginning of my ministry in understanding the gospel, understanding grace, understanding the distinction between works and obedience. And so now we come to the end of this epistle, the closing section in Galatians chapter 6. And I believe we are down to verse 9. And we should wrap up this morning. Galatians chapter 6. Verse 9. Now, we need to do a little review. Back to verse 6. You know, it's important to review. Somebody commented the other day that that sometimes people don't understand why I repeat so much. And it's a teaching style. The purpose in church is to learn. That's why people ultimately come to church, is to learn so they can worship God. And uh, it's amazing that the dominant philosophy of ministry out there today somehow doesn't quite grapple with that concept. You're somehow to be exhorted, you're to be encouraged, you're to be uh, lifted up, you're to have your emotions stirred, but you are not to have your thinking transformed by uh, concentration, thought, and analysis of Scripture. Now, to do that, you have to have certain things drilled into your mind. You have to have a good pedagogical concept underlying what comes out of the, out of the pulpit. It's not just something, three points in a poem, so you can go home and hopefully, as I was taught in in a preaching course in seminary. It's not so you can go home and hopefully tomorrow morning remember the three points and maybe get a chuckle if you remember the joke I told. And then maybe by Tuesday you've forgotten everything else, but the way our sin natures work, you'd probably remember the joke if it was any good. (laughs) That, I think, is a very shallow and superficial approach to a pulpit ministry. The purpose of the pulpit ministry is to teach the Word in such a way that not, not that you will remember it, but so that you can never forget it. And there's a big difference between those two things. And if I say things over and over and over again and review things time and time and time again to the point where you're almost bored to death, you've heard it so much, but there are certain things that I say that I see people lip sync out there. You're getting it. And that's the thing. See, when we hit crises in our lives, what we're going to rely on is what is ingrained in our soul, not what we've just heard a little bit once or twice. So that's why I go over these things again and again to make sure we really get them in, as well as the fact that there are some who miss a Sunday here or there, and so they it's been a couple of weeks since they've been here, and they need to be brought up to speed. Verse 6, Paul says, gives the mandate, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him who teaches. And we saw the word teach there means the systematic, detailed instruction, not just some superficial, emotional, devotional that stirs the glands. Do not be deceived, he says then in verse 7. Now, verse 6 is related to verse 7. Verse 6 talks about the importance of giving, the importance of putting your financial treasure, your physical treasures, uh, where your spiritual priorities are. But what happens so often is we prefer to put our attention, our priorities on the physical and that which just has a temporary value rather than putting it on that which has an eternal value. So Paul warns them in verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, we covered that briefly at the end of the last class, but I want to hit a couple of more points that we didn't cover. begins with the aorist passive imperative from planao, which means deception. It means 
to be led astray. It means to be uh, to learn something false. And so Paul warns them, do not be deceived. And where does deception come from? Deception may come from outside. In other words, the teaching may come from outside, but deception originates and is activated by our volition. When we choose to be deceived, deception is not something that is merely passive. We choose deception. Although there is a distinction between deception, for we know in the garden that Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned willfully. So there is a distinction, I think, in terms of a, a certain level of culpability. Deception is still a part of your volition. You choose to believe something that is false. That's why Paul can address this to uh, the will in terms of a mandate, an imperative mood. Do not be deceived. Deception is part of the arrogance skills that come naturally to the sin nature. These arrogant skills are four, and they begin with self-absorption. We don't have to learn self-absorption. It comes naturally. Just watch your child sometime. Think about that young infant and how focused they are on themselves. That self-absorption is the natural orientation of the sin nature, and this leads to self-indulgence. That's why you as parents are to teach discipline to your children. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it out. That is, the role of the parent is to teach them self-control of the arrogant skills. Self-absorption leads to self-indulgence. Self-indulgence then leads to self-justification. Well, we rationalize our behavior and make it right, and then that leads to self-deception. Now, this can take place in a moment of time. You go from self-absorption all the way down to self-deception, and it can also be a long-term cyclical process that just builds and builds until the total orientation of your soul is subjectivity and false doctrine. Paul warns them not to be deceived because when we reject the truth, what then is sucked into the vacuum of our soul is false teaching. And it is very easy for us to come up with all sorts of ways to rationalize, to justify uh, sin and avoiding spiritual responsibilities. One of the ways that is very common today is antinomianism. Antinomianism is from the two Greek words, Anti, which means against, and namas, which means law. It is the idea that, well, Jesus has paid for all my sins, so I really don't have to uh, obey anything in the Scriptures because I'm saved, so I can just do whatever I want to, and grace covers it. And that is not at all what the Scripture teaches. If that were true, then there would be no imperatives in the, in the Scripture. So there are mandates which emphasize the fact that the spiritual life is based on a plan, that there are certain procedures and certain principles that we must follow if we are to grow and advance spiritually. Self-deception is always the orientation of the carnal believer. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Throughout the Scriptures, truth is always juxtaposed to deception. The Scripture always teaches that there is just one truth. Modern man wants there to be many truths. All truths lead to God doesn't matter that these truths may be inherently contradictory. This is the orientation of modern man. So Paul warns, do not be deceived. Then he says, God is not mocked. And this is a hapax legomena, which is, means it's a fancy Latin word, meaning that it's only used one time in the Greek New Testament. looks like this. It's muk terizo. M-U-K-T-E-R-I-Z-O. And mukterizo literally means to turn your nose up at something. This is an idiomatic word. It's very picturesque. It's the idea, don't be deceived. Don't turn your nose up at God. In other words, don't ridicule God. Don't uh, treat God lightly. Don't treat Him with derision. And that's the idea. Don't dis disrespect God. What's the slang term today? Don't diss God. That's how... Well, there's one of these street slang Bibles out that utilizes language like that. Those kinds of things I'm totally against because they destroy 
and limit the meaning of the translation from the original. What this means is so often what happens in our lives is when we choose to sin, the flip side of that is we're saying, God, what you have said in your word is really meaningless. It has no value. It's false. Uh, I, I know better. It's the same thing that Adam and the woman did in the garden. When the serpent tempted Isha, the serpent said, now that's not quite true if what God said that you would die. You'll, you'll just become like God. And so she set herself up as the final authority to judge the veracity of God's statement. She said there, God had said, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And so the woman then looks at that, and on the basis of her own experience, on the basis of her own innate cognitive powers, she sets herself up as the judge to determine whether or not that is a true statement or not. At that point, she's already cast the die in the direction of sin. And, and it is treating God lightly. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. So that is what Paul is saying here. Don't be deceived. God cannot be treated with impunity. God cannot be disobeyed with impunity. God, there are all sorts of laws in the world, in the physical world. In the natural world, we know there are various absolutes within creation. There is, for example, the law of gravity. Few of us would be willing to jump off of the top of the World Trade Center believing that somehow uh, we would not splatter when we hit the pavement. There's also the law of thermodynamics. Now, we have a lot of scientists who somehow want to ignore this and live in an alternate universe of their own making, but the law of thermodynamics involves really two laws. First is that no energy... Or matter is created or destroyed. That means you have a finite amount of energy or matter in the universe. Now, this is a law this, as opposed to a theory like evolution. The law of thermodynamics says there's no energy or matter created or destroyed. It's finite. Point number two, or the second part of the law of thermodynamics, is that all energy is moving into a state of entropy, which is a state where that energy cannot be used. It still exists, but it is not usable. Well, if you start off with a finite amount of energy and you have an infinite amount of time, which is what evolution proposes, then you would run out of that finite amount of energy and everything in the universe would be dead now. So you see the theory of evolution completely contradicts the law of thermodynamics, which is well accepted in physics, and I have read one or two articles by evolutionists who are willing to accept the fact that there is a contradiction there and that maybe, for the sake of the theory, we ought to revise the law, which is just shows the absurdity and the subjectivity of much that goes on in modern science. And on the other hand, you do have people like Michael Behe over, I think he's at Lehigh University, who is not a creationist per se, but is willing to recognize that back at the time of Darwin, when a cell was thought of as just a basic blob of matter, that the idea that, that a couple of cells could get together and begin to reduplicate and, and evolve into a more complex system, and he recognizes and realized that with you, on the basis of microbiology and cellular biology, that, for example, a, a female ovum, a female egg, contains about uh, what's about a hundred gigabytes of data. A hundred gigabytes of data, and it, of course, if one piece of that data, if one byte is askew, then you're going to have a major problem and probably not have fertilization and birth. So everything has to be there, and the chances of all of that data being there correct for one cell, not to mention the thousands, hundreds of thousands of cells that have to come together to form a, a, a brain or an eye or an ear or any of those things is just beyond possibility. So he wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box where he argues very cogently for the inherent uh, impossibility of any sort of uh, Darwinian evolution. They have all sorts of laws. Ohm's Law. Ohm's law is a law related to electricity. It looks like this, R equals V over I, where R represents the electrical resistance, V represents the electrical potential, and I represents the electrical current. 
We have Bohl's Law, Boyle's Law in chemistry. Some of you remember this. The volume of a gas times its pressure is constant at a fixed temperature. These are absolutes in the physical realm. In the realm of thought and logic, you also have laws like Occam's Razor, which is also referred to as the law of parsimony. This states that entities should not be multiplied needlessly. To put that in everyday terms, the simplest of two or more competing theories is preferable, and that an explanation for an unknown phenomenon should first be attempted in terms of what is already known. In other words, it's called Occam's razor because the principles go for the simplest explanation. You have the law of non-contradiction, which states that a thing, a statement, a proposition, cannot be both true and not true at the same time and in the same way. These are basic, basic laws of thinking. You have laws in the arena of economics, like the law of supply and demand. And when it comes to morals and spirituality, God has also built in absolutes into the order of life. These apply to um, the arena of morals and establishment truth applies to both believer and unbeliever. And when you violate those laws, the consequences may not be as immediate as putting your hand on a red-hot stove. It may take 20 years before you start seeing the damaging consequences to your soul but those consequences are just as inevitable as splattering on the sidewalk when you jump off the World Trade Center. The thing is, we convince ourselves that it's not really true. We deceive ourselves into saying that won't happen to me because it doesn't happen to us the next day or the next day or the next year. It happens 20 years down the road because the cumulative damage builds up in the soul, and then one day we wake up, and we can't handle life anymore, and we have to rely on drugs, and we have to look to all sorts of things in life to give us stability other than the Word of God. And we say, well, I've been sitting in Bible class for, for 25 or 30 years, and doctrine really doesn't work. And I've heard people say that over and over again, and it's because they never were truly understanding and consistently applying it, or they were using 1 John 1, 9 as some sort of license to sin, so they were spending a majority of their time in carnality operating on the flesh anyway, and that just created more and more stress in the soul, fragmented the soul, and eventually led to the operation of the law of volitional responsibility. And that is that you suffer the consequences for your bad acts. And summarized here in verse 7 and 8, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. This idea comes from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea of divine discipline is much more a part of the concept. In Job 4, 8, and 9, we read, According to what I have seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God, they perish. It's divine discipline. Hosea 8, 7 says, For they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The point is that whatever you spend your investment of time, treasure, and talent on, you will reap either to eternal reward or to corruption and death and destruction in time. The problem is the context here is talking about how you use your finances, sharing all good things with him who teaches. That the person who spends, the believer who spends his money and is focused on simply indulging his physical needs and desires, particularly operating from arrogance, from money lust, and from materialism lust in his soul, without regard for eternal things and the fact that God gives us the resources he gives us for the purpose of furthering his kingdom. One of the greatest things, every now and then I hear some believer, somebody comes out with some book that is basically nothing more than socialism, that, that somehow the possession of great wealth is a hindrance to life. Now, that may be a distraction for some people, but I am amazed in my study of church history how much of what has been accomplished in church history in many churches and in missions has been done by very wealthy people. Now, the truth is that the majority of churches, the majority of missionaries, and the majority of financing comes from people who can't afford it. It's amazing the fact that, that the more money people make, the less they give. They get their money wrapped up in and retirement plans and investments and all kinds of things where it's not loose and ready to, uh, 
to give at a moment's notice. And so they, um, they, they don't give as much. And yet you go to some churches, and I've been in some churches where the average income is very low. In fact, you might even say that a lot of the, half the people are on welfare, and yet the percentage of giving that they, they give is incredible compared to some wealthier uh, congregations. And it's the fact that this materialism lust, money lust kicks in. All of a sudden you start making money, you want to hold on to it, and uh, priorities start to, get, start to shift. And I know that in, um, in my ministry, we, I've seen some tremendous benefit from uh, two or three people. And we have at this church two or three people who God has blessed incredibly through their finances. But that is not the backbone of either the Tate ministry or the local congregation. Most of the giving comes from people who just give small amounts on a consistent, regular basis. They do not become distracted by material things. And this is what happens so often. People forget that, that all life on earth is directed towards eternity. Is your investment of your time, your talent, and your treasure simply directed towards the immediate? Or do you have a long-term, long-range, eternal plan in mind. And this is the issue here. If you sow to your flesh the temporal sin nature, then from the flesh you will reap corruption. This takes us back to the fact that everything in life originates from either the sin nature, the flesh, in verse back in 517, or from the Holy Spirit, and it returns there. If it originates with the flesh and is motivated by the lust patterns of the sin nature and confined to simple uh, self-gratification, whatever arena that may, may fall in, then it ends up in corruption. It is nothing more than decay or rottenness. This is the Greek word thoron from the uh, verb pathyro. The Greeks had a way of putting things together in an almost unpronounceable way. This is P-H-T-H-E-I-R-O, pathyro. Easy for them to say. So the point here is that we are to pay attention to, to our investment and its long-term result. But it's easy to become discouraged and to become distracted over this, and that's the focus of verse 9. So often the results in ministry take time. They take years before we, um, before we see any result, and that result may be very limited. I know of missionaries who have been out on the field. I knew a, a classmate of mine from Dallas Seminary who moved his family and his, his wife, his three children, and they lived in a small two-room uh, apartment, one might say, in the city of the dead in Cairo. He was probably the only Christian around for, for about a two or three or four million people. And he would, uh, every day he would leave and go out on the streets, and of course it was illegal to witness, and he would leave his passport with his wife. If he didn't come home, she would have that passport, and she could go to the authorities with it, and it would force them to go look for him. And they spent about ten years ministering in that kind of environment, and over that time they saw seven people uh, trust the Lord as their Savior. So you see, sometimes it can be easy, you can easily get discouraged and uh, not see too many results or the results that you think you ought to see, and yet the Lord is, has a different criterion for evaluating our ministry. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, that the issue is faithfulness, which is the opposite of becoming discouraged. The issue is faithfulness, steadfastness in doing what is right. It's Noah preaching for 120 years and not seeing a single convert. Today, the church is so often driven by mass market salesmanship principles. Somehow, if we go out and we see the church grow, then, we're, then God is blessing. And that's the underlying assumption behind so much of the church growth philosophy that is running uh, churches today. People want to find somebody who's found some technique, some gimmick, that uh, brings people in. So then everybody else wants to be like that. And forget the fact that God might particularly be ministering to this individual or maybe he's doing a right thing the wrong way. And because he's doing it on human viewpoint technique, salesmanship uh, strategy that will always produce, 
He's got a church, but the Lord hasn't had anything to do with it whatsoever. He's just done it on the power of his own flesh. And yet that seems to be what impresses people is numbers and immediate results and consequences. And there's no room in our understanding of how God works for limited results. There's no room in our theology for uh, laboring somewhere for uh, 10, 20, 30, 40 years and maybe seeing only one convert or having a small church and never seeing it uh, grow beyond 10 or 15 or 20 people. We think that if, it's, if we're doing the right thing, then it automatically will see certain results, and that's just human viewpoint uh, salesmanship type of thinking and has no room in the local church. And the problem is that if we don't see certain things happen that we think ought to happen, that we're, because we're focused on these visible, measurable, quantifiable goals, we become discouraged. So Paul says, do not lose heart in doing good, which is not really a good translation. And it doesn't even mention heart in the original. In fact, what you have is a command, a negative command from the present active subjunctive of enkakeo. Enkakeo. E-N-K-A-K-E-O. Enkakeo means uh, to be weary, to be tired, to lose heart as, a, as an idiomatic phrase, to despair, to lose your motivation or to give up. And this relates to the believer who begins life well. He's, he's enthusiastic, he's challenged, he wants to support ministries, but after a while, it doesn't have the flash and the pizzazz that some other ministries have. And so, and then other things come in, other distractions in life, and soon other things take over in priority, and so the time, the money, the energy is diverted from a ministry where everything is being done well and faithfully because a false system of priorities has come in. So Paul says, do not lose heart in doing good. And literally, this is, a, this is a present active participle. It's an adverbial participle of time. And what this means is, while you are doing good, do not give up. That's the best translation. While you are doing good. So this recognizes that this believer is doing well, but then becomes discouraged. And Paul says, for in due time... We shall reap if we do not grow weary. Eventually, there will be a reward, either in time or in eternity. Now, this idea of not becoming weary is carried on in several other places in the Scripture. Now, this last word is different from the first. The first word was enkakeo, and this last word is uh, ekluomai. Ekluomai, E K L. U-O-M-I-M-A-I is used in a couple of other passages that are very instructive. Hold your place here and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Just a few books over. Notice all the books that start with T are grouped together. Once you learn that, you'll never get lost. First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and Titus are all grouped together. So just after the T books, you come to... Philemon and then Hebrews. That's just a little free thought, no extra charge. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. The focus is on Jesus Christ, occupation with Christ. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. You know, we start to get discouraged in life. Just think about all the hostility our Lord endured, and then we'll stop our whining and mewing very quickly. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary. There's our word. So that you may not grow weary. Ekluomai. So that you may not give up. See, when we focus on all the hostility that Jesus endured, we realize that all the problems that we have in life are nothing. And then we become very embarrassed that we even thought about complaining. That you may not grow weary and lose heart. And the word there for heart is not hard at all. It is the word suke, suke for soul, so that you may not lose your soul. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have seen in past studies that this is really an idiom for 
the spiritual life. For example, in James 1.21, James says, Therefore, having put aside all uh, filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, that is, through confession of sin, in humility, the attitude necessary, authority orientation, the attitude necessary to understand and learn the Word of God, in humility, receive the Word implanted. This is talking to a believer now. Receive the Word implanted which is able to save your souls. It's the same phrase, save the soul, save the life. And it's talking about the uh, growth in your soul from, from doctrine, which leads to a full spiritual life. So in Hebrews, when it says, don't grow weary and lose the soul or lose the life, what it's talking about is that when we give up, in the spiritual life, it is self-destructive to the spiritual life, and we will never advance to spiritual maturity, and we will come under divine discipline, which is the next subject that he brings up. Verse 4, the writer of Hebrews says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by Him. And there's that word again. It's translated faint this time. And it means to give up, nor give up when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. So the point that, that is carried along with this concept of, of, of not growing weary but hanging in there is a concept that is related to discipline and to uh, advancing in the spiritual life, and to experiencing all that God has for us in our spiritual growth, to advance to the high ground of spiritual maturity so that we can glorify God to the maximum. In Galatians 6.10, Paul draws a conclusion from all of this. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Now, this is, let's look at this, and then we're going to fit the whole thing into context. He's drawing a conclusion. He uses the phrase in the Greek, araun. Un is your particle of conclusion, O-U-N, and then in compound with ara, A-R-A. This together draws a very strong conclusion. So he is wrapping up an argument here. Now, why does he do that? When did this argument begin? It began all the way back in 5.1, about six or seven months ago when we got to chapter 5. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. So in this last, these last two chapters, Paul has been taking the implications of the doctrine of justification by faith alone and sanctification by faith to its conclusion to show how it impacts our relationships. Back in 5.1, he brought in the idea of freedom. Freedom from the sin nature. And from there he went to verse 13, where he talked about the importance of the royal law of love, through love serve one another. And now he is going to expand that concept that impersonal love is not merely directed to one another, other believers, but is to be extended to all mankind. So he, draw, he has brought in various significant doctrines that we have studied, the opposition of the sin nature to the Holy Spirit, the importance of walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And if you walk by means of the Holy Spirit, one of the productions of that is what? First thing listed, it's love. It is impersonal love to all mankind. That is a production by the Holy Spirit. And then this has its impact in relationships in one. It has its impact in restoring and how you restore another believer who has uh, fallen into some kind of uh, overt sin and you are a close friend of theirs and you have the opportunity to address that situation. It has its impact in bearing one another's burdens in 6.2. It has its impact in giving in support of the local congregation, in support of the ministry where you are being fed the Word of God. And so Paul concludes then, so then, while we have opportunity, while we still have time, literally, it is, in the Greek, it is having echo, 
while we still have time. Chiron, it's a related concept to the command over in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, to redeem the time. That is, that you only have a certain number of seconds allotted to your life. X number of seconds, the psalmist says it's um, approximately 70 years. How are you going to utilize those 70 years so that they accrue to you the greatest benefit for all of eternity? I was impressed when I was in seminary reading the story of a man named J. Gresham Machen. Machen used to be a household word among fundamentalists, but that was another generation. He wrote several crucial books in the context of what was called the fundamentalist modernist controversy, which was the fight against the incursion of liberalism into uh, truly fundamental, that is, biblically sound uh, uh, congregations and denominations at the turn of the century. He was on the faculty of Princeton, and when Princeton went liberal in 1927, he was one of the ones who led the charge, and he and four other men left Princeton and started Westminster Theological Seminary. If you read Machen's writing, the thing that stands out is that his intellectual acumen is far beyond most things you read by those who attack Christians. He had a a breadth and depth of knowledge that few people uh, attain to. And uh, Machen was one of these men that sat down, and when he was a young man, he knew he was going to be in the ministry, and he said, well, I'm going to live about 70 years, so I'm going to, when I'm in my 20s, and 30s, I'm going to get all my academic credentials. I'm going to learn, I think he learned seven or eight different languages, and I'm going to have all that accomplished by the time I'm 40. He earned a couple of different uh, Ph.D. degrees, and he mastered not only all the biblical languages, but uh, various modern languages so that he could read all the scholarly literature in whatever language it was in, whether it was German, French, Latin, uh, ancient Greek. He could read all the ancient languages uh, uh, that were known at that time that could give, in, uh, give insight into the biblical text. That way, whenever he was caught in a debate, whenever he was arguing with somebody over Scripture, he could go to the original sources and understand everything. And then he began, and then he planned the rest of his life. He said, in my 40s, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to teach. By the time I get into my 50s, then I will start writing. And from my 50s until I am 70, then I will write. He laid everything out. He had a plan and he had a procedure because he realized God gave him a certain amount of time and he had to plan out how he would utilize that time so that when his days were over, he could look back and say, Lord, I wisely used the time that you gave me. Now, very few of us look at our life that way. And that is a challenge. You know, even as parents, you ought to look at it that way. We're coming to the end of the year. You fathers... Parents, you ought to sit down and say, okay, what have we accomplished as a family this year? What have I accomplished this year in my role as raising the children to the, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? How can I improve that next year? Where are we going to go? What are the goals that I'm going to set for communicating certain things to the children? Am I going to read certain stories to them, take them through the Bible? What, in what ways am I going to teach doctrine to my family during the coming year. It's thinking about life in terms of a certain amount of time, a certain amount of temporal resource that God has given you to accomplish things for His honor and glory. So Paul says, while we have the time, you never know when that will conclude. While we have the time, let us do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And I was struck when I read this, with a parallel verse that comes from 1 Timothy 4.10. 1 Timothy 4.10, we have this same word used. looks like this, malista. M-A-L-I-S-T-A. And it's translated especially. And it is used in context where first there is a large group mentioned and then especially singles out a subgroup. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. So it is not saying only believers. It is saying He's the Savior of all men, but especially because it is applied to 
only believers. In the same way, our impersonal love is to be directed to all men, but especially those who are in the household of faith. And by that, Paul means those who have put faith alone in Christ alone, and therefore have salvation and are members of the royal family of God. So he concludes his discussion here, freedom is directly related to impersonal love. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but both involve a tremendous orientation to personal responsibility. Freedom without absolutes is anarchy. And and impersonal love expresses that aspect of responsibility that goes along to seek the best for one another, and that is defined under the concept of impersonal love. We are to love our neighbor as ourself, and that means we are to do good to them. And the word here for good is agathos, which has to do with divine good. So Paul concludes this last section by reminding us that we have an obligation to exercise impersonal love, not merely to believers, but to everyone. Then in verse 11 through 18, we come to the conclusion of this epistle. Verse 11, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, there are two views as to what Paul refers to here, and I'm not sure which is correct. And they may both be. Uh, Normally, when uh, one of the apostles wrote, they would dictate to a scribe. Now, the reason they did that is because the scribe, unlike your pastor up here, a scribe would have very neat, precise handwriting. always amazes me when I can look at somebody's handwriting and it's just perfect. Every letter. I had a student one time about 20 years ago and she would write out an exam and it read like a typewriter just the most precise printing I had ever seen in my life. She was a profound student as well, but just incredible penmanship, an art that has been lost, I think, today. I don't even think they teach penmanship in school anymore. For those of you who are too young to remember, that meant having excellent handwriting that was uh, legible and precise. And if you've gone to any kind of graduate school where you have to take notes hour after hour after hour, then that's what destroys your handwriting. Well, the standard practice was that he would dictate to a scribe. So you'd have your apostle here dictating to a scribe who would then write out the entire epistle. And then when he came to the end, at the conclusion, this would be written in the personal hand. We'll put PH here in the personal hand of the author. And this would authenticate the epistle as having come from the, from the Apostle Paul or Apostle Peter or, or from John or someone like that. For example, in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul concludes by saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. See, he limits it. It's the greeting. I write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. 1 Corinthians 16.21, Paul concludes, The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. And then in Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So one view is that this is simply the point that of the conclusion where Paul is now taking over. The scribe has written the rest, and all of a sudden he comes in and he's writing large letters. And the focus of this would be the same as our bold face, double underline, italics, to emphasize the concluding points. The other view is that Paul had some sort of eye trouble, and the reason he had to write with large letters is because he had had eye trouble, and this is something that would relate back to Galatians 3, where he mentioned the fact that he had a physical problem that that, uh, caused him to be unattractive. Uh, We're not certain on that. Most scholars tend to think that it is the Uh, former option that I suggest that he's simply emphasizing in bold face here the final points to make sure they understand how strongly he feels about these doctrines. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. 
And now he makes his final point. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now this takes us back to the basic issue and the occasion for this epistle. And that is the problem of Judaizers. Judaizers were Jews who had adopted a legalistic form of Christianity. And as Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had gone to the churches in South Galatia, here's a um, picture, a rough picture of Turkey. Here is the uh, Mediterranean. Down here would be uh, Cyprus. And the, this area of Galatia is down here with the cities of Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And on the first missionary journey, they first went to Cyprus, and then John Mark left them because he couldn't hang in there. He grew weary. He lost heart. And uh, Paul and Barnabas went on to these three cities in South Galatia. And following them on their heels were these Judaizers. And they would come into town after uh, Paul and Barnabas had left and said, Now, they taught you some good things about Jesus, and yes, He is the Messiah. But if you really want to have all the blessings of God in your life, it's not just enough to have faith alone in Christ alone. You have to add works. And this is best symbolized by circumcision. By circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament. And that it was through the Abrahamic covenant that God was going to bless the Jewish nation. And so if you want to be recipients of the Abrahamic covenant blessings, they would argue, where God told Abraham that it is through you that all the nations will be blessed. If you want to take part in these Abrahamic blessings, then you have to be circumcised. And so uh, they, the Galatians, didn't, uh, uh, they rejected the doctrine that Paul had taught them, and they entered into deception, and they bought into the legalism of the, of the uh, Judaizers. Now, there were two aspects. We're going to go back and review a little bit as we wrap up. There are two aspects to this legalistic doctrine. One was that you had to uh, be circumcised plus faith, in order to have all the benefits of salvation. And Paul addressed this very strongly in Galatians 1, 6 through 10, where he said, I am amazed that you have so quickly deserted Him who called you by the grace of Christ. Grace meaning the unearned favor of Christ. You did nothing to earn or deserve it. God did everything for you simply because of His impersonal love for all mankind. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul says you left that for a false gospel, a different gospel, a heteros gospel in the Greek. This is a gospel of a different kind. Verse 7, Paul says, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, they are disturbing them because they are introducing this false doctrine. And they had such an impact that it even convinced uh, Peter to quit associating with the Gentiles. And in chapter 2, verses 11 and following, uh, Paul had to, had to rebuke and correct Peter because of his legalism. And there we read that even Peter was associating with men who were uh, circumcised in verse 12. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, that is Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, these Judaizers, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. So he is bowing to public pressure from the uh, legalists. And verse 13, Paul went on to say, And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas is carried away. So here we have... Paul in the minority, and the majority has gone with a legalistic view, which demonstrates that the principle of the majority always being right is a false position. Often the minority is the correct position, not always, you can't count on that. But in this case, Paul was a minority of one, and everybody else was against him, but God plus one is a majority, and so Paul won out with the gospel of grace.
and see these who were pressuring Peter are the ones referred to in 6.12. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh. They were more concerned about the opinion of other people and what other people thought of them than truth. And this is often a very subtle trap that people fall into when it comes to going to church is they want to go someplace that's respectable where they can meet other respectable people in the community and have various business contacts. And so they're more concerned about having a good show in the flesh than they are with truth. So Paul says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised in the same way that they pressured Peter and Barnabas to be circumcised, simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You see, this was the problem. They were being persecuted by the Jews because they'd left Judaism and gone to Christianity. But if they, if they had adopted this uh, Judaistic view, the Mosaic law plus Christ, then they wouldn't come under so much uh, persecution and opposition from others. Now, the first part of the problem was, of course, adding to faith its salvation. But the second part of the problem Paul addresses in chapter 3, verse 3, where he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by means of the Spirit, that is, you were saved by faith alone in Christ alone, you were regenerated by God the Holy Spirit. Having begun by the Holy Spirit alone, are you now trying to be matured, not perfected? The word there means to be completed or to be matured. Are you now trying to be matured by means of the flesh? In other words, utilizing your relationship to the Abrahamic covenant plus the Mosaic law as a means of sanctification. They have confused spirituality with morality, and they are trying to advance spiritually simply by doing good. You see, you have to remember, this is something that many people forget, the Mosaic Law was addressed to the entire nation Israel, believer and unbeliever alike. The Mosaic Law was never designed as a means of spirituality. It was designed, there were three parts to the Mosaic Law. The first part is the Ten Commandments, which summarized the law. The Ten Commandments served as a prologue to the entire law. And then the second part was the statutes and ordinances, which explained how these principles, these ten mandates at the beginning, were to be applied in various situations. It's case law. And then the third section had to do with the uh, ritual soteriology and Christology in shadow form in all of the ritual and sacrifice, priesthood, the operation of the priesthood and the functions of the temple and tabernacle are all defined in that and that section alone applied to believers. Everything else applied to both believer and unbeliever alike. So the Mosaic Law is not a means of salvation or a means of sanctification. And yet many people forget that and they confuse morality with spirituality, and so having begun in the flesh, they're going to try to reach spiritual maturity by pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. And it just doesn't work, and it's not going to get you anywhere. And that is why Paul says that, that it's false. You have to begin by means of the Spirit, and you move to spiritual maturity by walking by means of the Spirit. It's a supernatural way of life. The Christian life is a supernatural way of life with a supernatural means of execution. The power comes from God, the Holy Spirit, and the Word of God. And we spent about four months doing a detailed study of what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. And we saw that you're either operating in one of two spheres. You're either walking by means of the Spirit or you're walking by means of the flesh. It's either grace or law. It's either uh, it's either grace or, grace or law. It's either uh, God doing the work or man doing the work. Emphasis on human works, and over here it's emphasis on production by the Holy Spirit. And these are juxtaposed to one another. It's either freedom in the realm of the Spirit, or it is slavery to the sin nature. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul sets up these two positions. It's either one or the other. There's no middle ground. It is very clear that you, the spiritual life must be conducted by...
by the Holy Spirit. Peripateo was the first word we talked about. Walking by means of the Spirit, it's a moment-by-moment, step-by-step dependency. And then stoikeo has to do with following in the path. And what is that path that's laid out? We saw that that was the objective Word of God. So we have to know the Word of God under the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God when we are filled by the Spirit of God. Now, back to our conclusion. Paul then explains in verse 13, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law. See, they were hypocrites. They only kept it overtly. They did not keep it uh, internally. That's how Paul, back in Romans 7, realized he was a sinner, was that he could do everything, but he still lusted. He still coveted. And that was a mental attitude. And so he points out that even those who try to keep all the points of the law overtly don't keep it consistently. Man cannot do that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they simply desire to have you circumcised. So like uh, cutting notches in their pistol handle, they may boast about their accomplishments in the flesh. And then Paul contrasts that. They may boast in having gotten you on their side, but may it never be that I should boast in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there he uses the term cross as a figure of speech. Now, this is a figure of speech called a metonymy. Your English teachers never taught you about that. And that's when you use one item that's part of a bigger or larger complex of issues to represent the whole. It's called the metonymy of the part for the whole. And the cross is where the work of Christ was accomplished. And so what it stands for is everything accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross and by uh, implication, all of the doctrines of salvation. So Paul says, May it never be that I should boast or glory in anything except in the cross, except in the doctrines of salvation brought about exclusively by our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, what in the world does Paul mean by that? Well, let's go back and do a little basic review here. The word for world is the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos has to do with the entire uh, cosmic system of thinking. And Satan's, most, or Satan's greatest achievement in cosmic thinking is religion. Religion is man trying to achieve God's approval on the basis of his own works and effort, which was exactly what the Apostle Paul was engaged in. Remember, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was involved in carrying and trying to fulfill all the law to the greatest degree as a practitioner of Judaism, and he was trained in one of the greatest rabbinical schools, the school of Gamaliel in Jerusalem at that time. And what he is saying here is that the world, in other words, this cosmic thinking, this is the devil's thinking here. We've seen that in James 3.13, that the thinking of the world is natural, earthly, and demonic. And he is saying that this thinking of the world has been crucified to me, it's dead. At the point of salvation, when I trusted in Jesus Christ as my, sa- my Savior, I was identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and that brought me to a position of death to worldly thinking, death to religious thinking, death to Judaism, and all of the legalistic concepts that the Judaizers are promoting. Through the cross of Christ, I have been separated, and I am dead to religious type of thinking, and the world has been separated or is dead to me and I to the world. And then he says, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision. And he's already stated that point. It doesn't matter spiritually whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. The issue in the spiritual life is what he says in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five seventeen, um, that there is neither Jew that um, uh, Galatians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. And how is that accomplished? That's accomplished by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration. And in the spiritual birth, we become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Overt things are not the issue. The issue is the spiritual reality that is the result of faith alone in Christ alone. And then in verse 16 he says, those who walk by this rule, and that's this term canon, 
from which we get our term the canon of Scripture, who walk by this standard, that is, faith alone in Christ alone, peace and mercy upon them. And then it says, and upon the Israel of God. And here we have a repetition twice. You have this preposition, epi, epi, E-P-I. And the repetition of the preposition indicates he's talking about two different entities. Peace upon them and upon the Israel of God. This term does not refer to the church. There are those who want to refer to the church as the new Israel. This is replacement theology and it is part of covenant theology. The church is never referred to as Israel anywhere in the Scripture. There are 65 times in the New Testament where the term Israel is used, and every time it refers to ethnic Jews. It is never used to refer to the church. What Paul is saying here is that this rule be upon them, that is, these believers, and even upon the Israel of God. This is not just ethnic Jews, but Paul says there are, there's true Israel, and true Israel are those who have accepted Christ as Messiah and are regenerate. So the Israel of God refers to true regenerate Jews. He is saying, by by implication, I'm not anti-Semitic. By going against these Judaizers, it's not an attack on Israel. The true Israel are those who are regenerate, and he pronounces a, a benediction or blessing upon the Israel of God, which is the true, uh, the Jews who are truly regenerate, as Paul himself was. And then he concludes in verse 17 and 18 by saying, From now on, let no one cause trouble for me. Remember, he referred to them back in the first chapter. The Judaizers were causing trouble to the Galatians. For I bear in my body the brand marks. And this is the word stigmata. Stigmata. Now, the word stigmata is often used today in a different context. But in the early church at that time, it was like a tattoo or a brand. Just, it was used to refer to the branding of cattle. It indicated a mark of ownership. Often slaves had the names of their owners branded on their bodies. Sometimes soldiers did. Often it was soldiers who had deserted and then they, there was a brand uh, placed on them as a sign that they had once deserted. But it was very common for the practitioners of the various cults to tattoo on their bodies the names of the gods they worship. That's the background for this. Paul is saying, I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. And he's referring to all of the marks, the scars from the whippings and beatings that he had suffered as a result of his devotion to Jesus Christ and the adversity he had placed. He says, I have, I have suffered for the Lord and I bear in my body those brand marks that indicate that I am exclusively devoted to the truth of Jesus Christ. And then he concludes in verse 18, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice his last word, grace, grace, grace. It's not legalism. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your human spirit. In other words, I hope that you have finally learned that it is salvation by grace and sanctification by grace and not by works and that this has been learned in your human spirit. With our heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to study this uh, important epistle and all of the tremendous doctrines that are included therein that teach us about your immeasurable, uh, unfathomable grace, that you have done everything for us and that nothing we have in the spiritual life or in salvation is related to who we are or what we do. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned, that we may be encouraged to press on and to not grow weary in our advance to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.